Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale, sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, zip up your leather pants, slap on the clown paint, and don't forget to eat something light as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. This is Monsteropolis, a show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined, as always, by my faithful friend, uh, Mark Matsky. Hey. That wasn't going to go anywhere I, bad. I just couldn't, couldn't <laughs> I, spit the word out. I was just waiting. Uh, I'm super tired. Like, Tommy woke up. T- t- I have this thing now where if Tommy wakes up any time between, like, Four and five thirty. I'm sunk. Like I'm just up. I can't. Oh. So he woke up last night at four fifty three, and I couldn't fall back asleep. So I just was up. Ah, uh, is up he since. up then, or does he, you know, he get back to? Sleep? Yeah, he falls back to sleep. Um, and he's been having nightmares and stuff. So he's, you know, he wakes up a few times a night. It's funny. Right now, he actually wakes up more during the night than he did when he was like an infant for the last mm-hmm. maybe like three or four months. So we're going through a, a some sort of phase where we don't sleep much. Yeah, it's delayed. You're, yeah, you're getting it on the later end of things. Yeah, so that's been fun. Um, how's th- how's things with you? Oh, things are okay. I mean, I um, spent sort of the weekend geeking out over um, Mount St. Helens eruption coverage. Yeah, I can't believe it was 40 years ago, and um, I was like seven years old when that happened. So I remember that had a big impact on my worldview like gigantic disasters can happen at home yeah it <laughs> just imprinted on me i guess i'm sitting so here lots of- grinning at you and it wasn't because of the <laughs> the disaster it's just because I, I i was like getting <laughs> yeah. into bed the other night and uh i saw something you had posted about it and i was mm-hmm. like man you know I, I sometimes throw these things at my wife to see if she'll catch them and i'm, I'm like lay down and i'm like man it's hard to believe that was uh, 40 years ago, you know. I I still remember when all that happened. And it took her a minute. Like she didn't catch it immediately. So, to her I probably it seemed like I'm 80 or something. Um, but yeah, I don't you what? I don't remember it. But I remember you talking about it when we were there. Um which a lot of the images, what I've been trying to figure out when I see the, the most of the like images and the video that is out there is like where we would have been in conjunction with where the, where the photos I'm seeing are. Mm-hmm. You can't really tell, like I have no idea, but it was, yeah. it was interesting. If, if it would have blown up the way it did when we were there, we could have potentially survived because it blew up to the North and the mm-hmm. West. Okay. And we were on the southeast side of the mountain. So then, so. what? Okay, see, then I'm totally wrong then. Because I was thinking where we would have been is like where maybe everything came because of the fact that there's that 
river of oh there was a lava flow coming in that direction okay but like the the blast and the shockwave you see all the photos of the trees knocked down like sticks that was to the north Mm -hmm. i mean we still could have been melted but (laughs) yeah we wouldn't have been incinerated How, how close would you be to to be melted if we were, how, how close, I mean, would you have to like fall well, in it I, or could you, is it hot enough? I think river of lava and my, my thinking is we would die being within like 50 yards of that scientific, yeah, oh, probably, scientifically. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. All boiling right. mud river flow. Yeah. All right. It'd be over. All right. This is fun. This is, this fun. is. I love it. I can't get enough. Disaster and yeah. So anyway, I just want to say real quickly, there was a wealth of like uh, Zoom lectures and art gallery exhibits and stuff having to do with the uh, the eruption, mm-hmm. and I I made as much use of that as I could. It was pretty cool. What do you What did you learn from it relating to Bigfoot? Well, um, pretty much <laughs> wiped out the entire population. Oh man, unfortunately, no. And the, the helicopters came and spirited them away. So I'm glad. The, you, okay, because we're about to get into this whole episode is going to be kind of about Mount St. Helens in a way. But like, um, where did that rumor or that story? Where did that originate? The the like bodies taken. Where did that come from? That's a great question. I <laughs> I, had, I really don't have a sense of where that traces from or, or how far back it goes. I would imagine. It would go back pretty close to the eruption itself because that area was historically known as a Bigfoot hotspot. I always, you know, I always think of that in terms of Tom Powell and the locals, but I went back and checked and that's not, he's not talking about Mount St. Helens in that appendix. I sometimes confuse that in my own mind, but Uh that, that was talking about a wildfire um, somewhere else. So I, I would imagine that goes back to the early 80s probably the helicopter stories. It's just, I think that particular little Bigfoot anecdote. And for those that don't know, the story that goes around is that people witnessed, um, the military, I believe by helicopter, correct. Removing bodies from around Mount St. Helen, Bigfoot bodies from around Mount St. Helens following the eruption. But I think that the story is such a good example of how Bigfoot lore, especially, uh, comes to be because like, I can't, you, I don't know who you trace that back to those stories, like who, who originated those stories. And, and I don't think there's any way to corroborate those stories. I think it's one of those things where, where they've been repeated so many times that people just accept it. Like that's a thing. Someone, someone said this at one point that was actually there, but it probably in all actuality, those stories probably originated from like a friend of a friend who claimed yeah. that they knew someone who. Yeah, exactly. Something like I, that. And I think to me, the most sensible explanation is that there was body recovery going on mm-hmm. uh, most likely, but not Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. You know, they were locating corpses and getting them out of there. And someone conflated that into, oh, they were taking a Bigfoot body out when in fact it was just a logger or a hiker. Uh, how did, how did people die? Because they they knew this thing was going to blow for weeks, right? Mm-hmm. How did so? How did people die? In the- well, I think what happened uh, in many cases was there were um, I, thrill seekers, I guess, for lack of a better term, mm. that 
you know, for weeks, people were getting in place, trying to get as close to the mountain as they could. Uh, there's one guy in particular, I forget his name, but in one of the books, it traces the, the number of times that he made it a sport to sneak in past the red zone and, and go up on the mountain just to see if he could do it, you know, yeah. for the thrill of it. Yeah. And, and other people were um, trying to get good photos, like the most famous photos of the mountain exploding. There's no video of it. All the explosions when the mountain lets go is is like a a, a series of still photographs kind of blend together. But mm-hmm. uh, so people trying to get good photographs and and some others who uh, lived within the blast zone and just refused to leave their homes. Hmm. That's the 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 most famous of those was a man named Harry Truman. Um, obviously not the, uh, the Harry Truman, not the Harry Truman, but he had a homestead and I think an inn or a hotel that he owned, you know, very close to Spirit Lake. And in the run up to the actual eruption, he was interviewed by a number of news programs and he just was out there saying, I'm not going to leave. I mean, his wife was, had died. She was buried on the property and he's like, I'm not leaving. This is home for me. And he perished in the, the blast. And, uh, scientist named Johnston that the observatory is now named after. He stayed behind just for observation purposes and he was killed. He's a very famously said, like it's here it comes or it's happening or something along those lines. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, all right. So this week we're talking about, uh, Ape Canyon. Have we done an Ape Canyon? We haven't done an Ape Canyon episode, have we? I don't think so. Not, not dedicated. Okay. Completely um, to Ape Canyon, no. And um, I mean, this is the, the episode where I'm just going to go ahead and say we're working on an Ape Canyon movie. So the, <laughs> this is at least partially, um, probably on Mark's end, inspired by that. So if you hear what we've been talking about, the secret project that we're working on is an Ape Canyon movie. As I, we're not going to go into details about what it is. I wouldn't. I don't even know how to put it. It's inspired. It's an. It's, it's an. It's a movie inspired by the Ape Canyon incident, I think is the best way to go about it. Um, and, and I'm really like, it's very difficult for me. I'm not the type that keeps secrets well. So th- this kind of thing inevitably happens with everything we work on. I just get to a point where I'm like, hey, I'm done like not yeah. talking about this. <laughs> so um, we don't want to give away like what we're working on, but we, we have uh, Mark, especially and Jason uh, have been, eating and sleeping and uh, living Ape Canyon for a few weeks now. So um, that's, I think that's where this episode's coming. When Mark threw this at me, I was like, this isn't a coincidence. Mark's, Mark's got this one in the bag. So, (laughs) um, but I, I, I don't even know what I'm going to say about Ape Canyon other than um, we, we, we obviously need to do some sort of setup for the, for the listeners, but um, before we get to that, if you're interested in the Ape Canyon incident, Mark and I went to Mount St. Helens, uh, flew a drone in, in the general direction of Ape Canyon and, um, interviewed Mark Marcel all about the Ape Canyon incident. And, uh, you can see that in the first episode of On the Trail of Bigfoot, which is currently free, uh, for a very short period of time. Uh, so if you want to watch it, go watch it. Uh, but it'll, it won't be free much longer. So, um, do you want to set up Ape Canyon and then we can just talk? About about Ape Canyon? Oh, not sure. Uh, well, I think the Ape Canyon incident, as such, is firmly embedded in Bigfoot lore for sure. 
And what's so exciting about it is the fact that even at this present time, there's more information coming out about the reality of the um, experience and the uh, not only in the eyewitness um, accounts that are left behind, which are quite detailed, and we'll get into quite a bit of Fred Beck's statement today, but there's independent information that's there in the public record that people like Mark Merzel for, uh, specifically have been able to uncover that says, you know, at the very least what we can say is that there were prospectors in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area up there going after gold and had a cabin where they said they did. And um, that's all historically verifiable. So I think that's partially what makes Ape Canyon so tantalizing and interesting is that um, we can be very certain that Fred Beck and his friend Hank and a number of others were involved in this pursuit and trying to find gold like so many other people were uh, doing in the 1800s and into the early or in the, the early 20th century. Um, so I'm looking, this has vexed me for a while and uh, I've talked frequently about a documentary that has an interview with Fred Beck or Albert mm-hmm. Ostman. I'm, I think it's Bigfoot man or beast. I'm looking at it right now. And it looks very familiar to me. But this at the same time is also the one where they weirdly reuse all the footage from that documentary you and I look like, uh, look like uh, that, <laughs> that documentary you and I like. Um, now that I'm looking at it, I don't know if this is it. I don't think it is. Dang it. It's, it's either Bigfoot Man or Beast or Bigfoot Man Beast or Man Beast. Well, there's Ostman. So Bigfoot Man or Beast has an... Oh, there he is, Fred Beck. Okay. So if you want to watch, I'm going to send you, Mark... The link to this okay because i don't know if you've watched this one or not but it is yeah, uh, i don't know man or beast has interviews with ostman and beck oh that's cool um so i'll send it to you right now but we gotta we should do an episode about that documentary at some point honestly because i think it's really mm-hmm. important um it's also got ruby creek um relatives i think like people that were relatives of people from ruby creek and stuff like that so it's really like to me it's a historical document like as much Mm -hmm. as it is a cheesy bigfoot documentary and then it and then it does like the end is that movie that you and i like with robert w morgan oh yeah um they just like intercut a lot of the footage from that into the end of it and it becomes that movie wow which again there's a mount st helens connection Mm -hmm. for you because that's around that whole area um so yeah the ape canyon incident is uh was one of my favorite stories coming into to the bigfoot world um and uh, uh, it was probably the one of the biggest thrills of going out to the Pacific Northwest. Honestly, like going out there is one of the biggest thrills of my time as a filmmaker, if not my time as a human being. Um, mm-hmm. Getting to go out there and see see the the area around Mount St. Helens and kind of get a lay of the land. Um, where do you want to go? Where do you want to talk about with this? Well, I what I'd like to talk about is sort of setting the record straight from Beck's standpoint, because there's some assumptions and reports of Ape Canyon. You know, if you were to ask somebody with a general knowledge of Ape Canyon and what happened there, you know, you get a, a general story, but Beck's, Beck's account is pretty detailed. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's from a book or it's more like a booklet. It's not a full length book by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a booklet called I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens, Washington. And 
uh, it was it's essentially Fred Beck relaying his memories to his son Ronald in September of 1967. So there's about five or six short chapters that set it all out um, for the reader. And I just find it interesting. Like I'll just cut right to probably the biggest. Um, I don't know, myth-busting moment, if you will, of the whole thing. And that is that, as Beck tells it, it wasn't the killing of a Bigfoot that precipitated the Ape Canyon incident. It was shooting at a Bigfoot that got away. And then, so, you know, they're out there. um, He and Hank are, you know, doing what they do, looking for gold. They find footprints and so forth. And they look up and they see a Bigfoot creature in the wood line Hank takes a couple shots at it, and so does Beck, but they evidently don't hit it because it, they watch it run away. And that's what precipitates the rock-throwing, most famous part of the Ape Canyon event and the pounding on the door and everything. And then it's the next morning when they come out after all this has happened that Beck says he saw a, a Bigfoot or Sasquatch standing near the edge of the, the cliff, and he shoots it hits it and it falls over the edge and then they all scramble and leave. So that that's from the horse's mouth, which I found pretty interesting because typically the way that story gets told is they see a a Bigfoot, they kill one, falls off the cliff. And that's the night when, you know, the attack takes place. Yeah. So he kills it the next morning after the attack has already taken place. Yeah. Huh. Does it falls off a cliff where, See the the interesting thing about Ape Canyon is, would you call it a canyon? <laughs> that they're, I mean, they're on the side of a cliff. Like their their cabin was like almost built into the side of the mm-hmm. cliff. Yeah, um, and that's something that I don't think people realize either about that place is how rugged that mountain. I mean, it's rugged today. I can't imagine what right. it was like prior to the the uh, the 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 volcano exploding and all that stuff. Um. Quick yeah, question. Beck estimates, uh, real quick, Beck, yeah, yeah. Beck estimates that when he shot the creature, it fell down into a gorge approximately 400 feet. Okay. So it's not like a ditch. A smart a, fall. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, the scope of this is quite large. Did they look, did they see it laying down there or did they, did, did he mention that? No, I, I don't think they saw it laying at the bottom. Okay. I, the, the way that it strikes me is it toppled over the cliff down into the gorge, and then the, they got out of there as soon as they could. I forget but what my first question was. Now I have a second question. Does he describe in his own words what they look like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Can you give me that description? Yep. Yeah, He. Um, it's, it's pretty thorough. And the other thing is that I thought was interesting is that Beck recalls seeing a Bigfoot many years earlier near Kelso, Washington with his brother. Hmm. Um, so he's a multiple experiencer. sighting experiencer, yes. Yeah. So physical appearance. Uh, Beck says they are about seven feet tall. They have large ears and a head that was in proportion with their large muscular okay. body. That, that ear thing, for some reason I remembered that. That's why I mm. asked that because years ago I read something about that because I've always had in my head how I wanted these things to look if, if like we ever made a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it isn't the traditional sort of Bigfoot look i you know like i've always seen them as as being a almost a direct interpretation of the word ape you know like when you think ape canyon is seven foot tall walk man upright walking you know 
man-like but ape. That's interesting. Yeah. Covered in fur, hair. Yeah, it says um, they were hairy but not shaggy. Mm. In general, they possess a very stout physical frame. Their shoulders were tremendous, but they had slim hips. Ooh. Hey. They, <laughs> it's, uh, hips don't lie, guys. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, that the ears, and also, you know, there's nothing in the description that is sort of the stereotypical Sasquatch conical head or mm-hmm. head out of proportion. It It's more of a, a uniform shape. It's, it's really weird. And this is 19, what, 24 or 19? Yeah, 24. Okay, 1924, mm-hmm. which I don't think these descriptions necessarily line up with what I've read of Wildman reports. Uh, and I don't think it really lines up with what we think of today as sort of traditional Bigfoot. Because um, he's describing them all sort of looking similar. Is that what you're telling me or just the one that mm-hmm. they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that in itself is sort of unique. But it's also, this is also one of the few instances of someone claiming to encounter multiple. Um, Ostman would be in that camp too, but. Such a, okay, can can we talk about? I don't know if you have an order you want to do this in, but um, I a part of this that gets overlooked, and the first time I became aware of it was was through Robert Schneck, um, when he did his talk at the first uh, International Bigfoot Conference or uh, International Cryptozoology Conference that you and I went to, and he talked about the um, sort of supernatural side of the story that gets. I guess over overlooked pretty often. Could we talk about that? Can you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about Fred Beck is that he self identifies as a, a spiritualist or even a psychic. I mm-hmm. think he would, he uses that word himself. And that begins with his childhood. It's fascinating. It's the third chapter of this little I Fought the Ape Men book where he talks about and very openly about sort of his background and his life experience. Um, he, uh, as a little kid, you know, had, for example, he, he writes this, uh, since a young man, I'd always, always been clairvoyant. When just a boy, I was in the pasture playing with my bean shooter. I had bought it with some long earned coins. It had a twisted wire handle. I lost it. And as I was crying, a kindly woman came up to me and put her arms around me. I felt warm all over. Little boy, she said, don't cry. Go home. You'll find your bean shooter there. I went home and found it. As far as I knew then, it was the same one. Uh, But years later, I found the one I lost. It was weather-beaten and the rubber was rotten. And this begins a pattern that sets up throughout Beck's life, which is to say he feels that as though he has encountered spiritual beings that have brought him various directions. And that goes into his discovery of uh, the gold or the mining area, and I, I can talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. But this is just something, this was a, a part of his life that he really didn't consider to be that weird. It was um, just his experience from, as you just heard, his, his childhood. He also made a comment that um, I'd be sleeping on the hard benches of the Adventist church my folks used to a- attend. I would have my head in a lady's lap. Only when I mentioned it to my folks, they said there was no one else there. And took it to be a boy's musings. So what's what's really odd about these spiritualist experiences that he has is that they're they're always they always seem tied to some other sort of human-like 
figure, whether mm-hmm. it's the woman telling him your toys at home or this unseen woman in the church pew, uh, all the way up then to in the 1920s where they're going out um, looking for gold. He said, the method we found our mine was psychic. I'm mentioning these facts to help build a background of understanding in a case which has only been explained in a material sense. He's talking about the Sasquatches and so forth. Um, In 1922, we found the location of our mine. A spiritual being, a large Indian dressed in buckskin, appeared to us and talked to us. He was the picture of stateliness itself. He never told us his name, but we always called him the Great Spirit. He replied once, the Great Spirit is above me. We are all of the Great Spirit if we listen when the Great Spirit talks. And uh, this is a figure that will reappear to him in the location, ultimately, of the mine that they uh, tried to extract gold from. But there was another uh, incident here as well. Uh, Another spiritual being appeared to us, more in the role of a comforting friend, and we learned her name. One of our party suggested that we name our mine after her, and so the mining claim we later filed bore her last name. The big Indian being told us there would be a white arrow going before us. Another man who was not present during the attack in 24 could see the arrow easily and clearly at all times, and I could see it nearly as well. And uh, to make a long story short, they follow this arrow that some of them can see and some can't. And finally, it literally points to the place where the gold is uh, eventually allegedly going to be found. This is how it goes. When we saw the arrow soar up high, change direction, swoop down, it hovered near the top of the north cliff of Ape Canyon. That was the site where we later blasted out the shaft. We got a little closer. We all saw the image of a large door open and the big Indian appeared in front of it. He spoke, because you have cursed the spirit leading you, you will be shown where there is gold, but it is not given to you. And I mean, whatever you think about that, those words were turned out to be true because they left without. Was there anything going on when or around the time of the attack? I thought I remembered something about like table turning or something happening in the shack. Is that Hmm. a thing? Is that an element of this? No. I'm not sure. Were they contacting I, the Bigfoots through a Ouija board? I don't recall that at all. <laughs> I liked, you looked up to see if I was being serious or not. <laughs> yeah, like, I was. Like, really? <laughs> you got Yeah, no. Um, they Beck doesn't go that far yeah. in this. Now, by the time that this is written, he's an old, pretty old man. Mm-hmm. You know, you consider it was 67. So, yeah. but that seems to be something that he would have himself mentioned. Mentioned, but yeah. Maybe, um, I mean, certainly, I mean, to, to fast forward to some of his conclusions, he is, he is essentially taking the viewpoint that whatever was marauding their cabin was, um, sometimes physical and sometimes not. Hmm. I mean, he, he interpreted these to be some type of spiritual beings manifesting themselves for a, a short time as physical, but then not. And, and rather than that being sort of, uh, just a, arbitrary bizarre conclusion it falls in line with his worldview i mean it's not unusual based on everything else that he claimed to experience uh joshua cutchin and timothy renner put out a new book um we need to talk about it on the show oh i can't remember what the oh where the where the where the footprints end or where the Hmm. i think that's what it's called so it's paranormal bigfoot okay reports i'd I'm interested in reading it. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, uh, there's a lot to this story that gets left out. Um, does he talk about anything happening later in life? You know, like any, any experiences later? Yes, he does. Okay. And it's does, pretty fascinating to me. Okay. Does it um, involve him pointing a gun at, or I swear there's like a gun involved or something with this, with some later experience. I don't know where I'm recalling these things from, but like some of it I've been right on. So Okay. So I swear that somewhere there's something about him claiming that later in life he like shot at one or something. What does he What does he talk about in in that well, book? In the in the immediate wake of the experience, he talks about uh, a um, interaction that he had with a number of uh, Yakima Native Americans. Hmm. Uh, I, I might have made a reference to this at some point in talking about script stuff a long time ago, mm-hmm. but. This just, I like this so much. He says, um, after the 1924 incident, I visited a dentist to have a tooth pulled. It was a little town in eastern Washington. As I was coming out of the office, a man came up to me and asked, are you the man who I read about in the papers who was attacked by eight men? I told him I was. Could you come with me? He asked. There's someone who would like to talk with you. He took me to a tavern where he introduced me to 10 or 12 Yakima Indians. They wanted to make sure I was the man, and when they were... After asking me some questions, they told me about the Salatics, the name by which they knew the abominable snowmen, as he likes to call them. They said the Indians knew about them, but white men never believed the tales of Indians. They said they were very careful never to go where they knew them to be, and if they ever found themselves in their presence, they were doubly careful not to offend them. If you ever harm one, they will get even, one Indian said. They never forget. Hmm. So I thought that was pretty chilling uh, in a way. Um, not that anything untoward seemed to happen to Beck, actually, in yeah. real life. I mean, he lived out his his days pretty pretty well. I don't think like he had any tragic things that happened to him, except you know they uh, had they left the gold behind, which was sort of tragic. the point of their being up there. Mm-hmm. But um, um, yeah, and the, the, the Yakima Indians is odd yeah. too, because that's not exactly an area where you would expect there to be Bigfoot activity, right? I mean, I don't remember that area super well because I was still pretty sick while we were there. Yeah. But I thought I remember it being pretty, I mean, it was hilly, but it wasn't, there wasn't forest, right? Right. And and having said that, the Yakima Reservation is is rife with Bigfoot reports and tribal accounts. Okay. Um, there's, uh, the, in fact, uh, your pal and mine, Dave Politis, has mm-hmm. a book uh, that's all about Yakima reports. Um and interestingly, there is a history of spook light sightings in the Yakima Valley oh, yeah. as well. So there's a whole mishmash of weirdness going on there. Um, but to your point, it's not Eastern Washington is not the stereotypical Pacific Northwest old growth forest that you would think of. Yeah, it's we were surprised more, when we yeah, were there. It's we, just more our scrubby. mouths were hanging agape the entire <laughs> the entire this time. Is it? I was my house mouth was hanging agape because I couldn't breathe. Uh, I was just struggling. I was just struggling to breathe. It's more gasping. Yeah. <laughs> oh uh, my heavens! I I genuinely apologize for a lack of energy on the show. I I am legitimately barely awake today. So, um, but yeah, I uh, Ape Canyon is is a great story and it's uh, rife for um, some sort of massive undertaking. Um, 
if you are unaware of or haven't really followed the work of of Mark Marcel, I would highly recommend doing so. Has Mark written a book? I know he's got. He has. Okay. And I think you have to get it directly from him. Okay. So you have to find him on Facebook and befriend him. And yes. Buy a book from him, but it, I don't think it's available in any other outlet. Mm-hmm. Mark's a, a a great guy and a wealth of knowledge about the the subject, which is why I put him in put him in our our episode of On the Trail of Bigfoot that was all about this. Uh, do you want to sum up the the Ape Canyon stuff? Yeah, sure. And the one word on the Salatic, mm-hmm. um, you know, when that reference is made, the according this is back. Again, so he says, according to Indian legend, the quote-unquote apes were the ferocious Salotic Indians, a band of renegades much like giant apes in appearance, who lived like wild animals in the secluded caves of the Cascades. Uh, the first recorded encounter of the apes with white men was 1924, um, and it just continues on. So that that adds a little bit of confusion, I think, to the mix in that, you know, when the, later on the Yakima Indians are referring to the Salatics, it's, uh, there's some gray area about, are they talking about a, a creature? Are they talking about what we think of as a cryptid? Are they thinking in terms of, you know, a, a tribe that went feral or something, mm-hmm. which is, is just, you know, it, it's amazing to see how all those ideas blend. Um, in the, the location between the folklore and the white settlers coming out and, you know, just basically, they don't know what it is. They're going to take a shot at it yeah. and ask questions later. Yeah. But I think um, to wrap, start wrapping up Ape Canyon, I mean, it is, it's absolutely an, a 100% American story in the sense that I was just talking about where you have, you know, the white man or a settlers and prospectors of European descent and background and they bump up against native culture and what ensues is anyone's guess but um, that's all wrapped up in the promise of wealth Mm. you know that we can go out and uh, still in the 1920s there was still the hope of going out and finding a mine finding a vein of gold and if we just hit the right combination we'll be set for life and you know how that might line up with sort of modern environmental ideas and and um, the, the use of the earth itself native american sacred spaces and not to mention then fred beck's own spiritual perspective which was very much of its time you know the uh, late 1800s early 1900s where spiritualism was rampant in our in American culture, as strange as it is to modern ears to hear that. I mean, the idea of spirit guides and let's follow this ghostly arrow to a place where the gold is hidden is not, was not an idea that got Beck laughed at. You know, people took him seriously and uh, they made major decisions based on that sort of information. So it really is of a time. It's of a very specific period in American history. And all of that, I think, is is fascinating in and of itself. And then you add to that a Bigfoot attack, you know, like a coordinated multi-creature rock-throwing event taking place and the possibility that a, a Sasquatch or a Salatic was slain. It's just, a, um, you know, it's no wonder we keep talking about the story because it's just so uh, perfectly 
turn of the century America. It, it almost sounds like you've done a lot of thinking about this story <laughs> and tried to sum up some of the things that are most important about it. Some of the themes <laughs> it's dealing with. Um, no, it's really, it's really just a buddy cop. Yeah. It's a buddy cop movie. movie. Yeah. Um, yeah don't, don't misunderstand. It's more of a rom-com than anything. Uh, if you like the show, uh, Send us uh, mail, monstropolismail at gmail.com. Leave us reviews on Amazon, not Amazon. <laughs> uh, leave us reviews on iTunes and other podcatchers. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I will I will try to get sleep next week before we do a show, so I'm not barely hanging on when we record. Uh, but thanks for listening. We'll be back. Monsteropolis is proudly presented on Wadsworth Community Radio 97.1 FM or streaming live at wadsworthcommunityradio.com. It is proudly underwritten by Thurber's Jewelers on the Square in downtown Wadsworth.